Craig-Karan. And I'm Veronica McCarthy. And this is Women of Contradictions. Hello. Hello. We're in the holiday countdown. (laughs) (laughs) I'm counting down because I'm excited. Veronica is counting down because she can't wait for it to be over. (laughs) I'm counting down until Boxing Day, which you taught me the uh, historical beginnings of Boxing Day, and I love them. I'm here for it, and it's my favorite day of the year. (laughs) The the working, working class roots of Boxing Day. Yeah, they finally get the day off, and I'm like, I feel like I finally get the day off too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I want to get into things because I'm going to be greedy this week and I am giving you four things instead of three because I couldn't decide between a few and I was like, you know what? Screw it. Let's do them all. I love it. All right. Well, I will jump right in then. Okay. My first thing is just brilliant freaking marketing and it was <laughs> accidental marketing but still nonetheless so good do you know the company stanley they kind of make like indestructible massive mugs i am familiar with stanley i feel like stanley's having a moment uh, i am i have not partaken in the stanley anyway this tiktok went viral where a woman's car no one was injured but a woman's car was burned to a crisp no longer recognizable as a car not exactly sure how the car fire started but it demolished the car and the video went viral because despite the car being demolished her stanley mug with her you know diet coke or whatever was in it was still fully intact in her cup holder in the car and she wow. just was like and obviously the internet exploded and there's a lot of um videos telling stanley like reaching out to stanley saying like stanley you need to like send this woman like a lifetime supply of stanley mugs yada 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 anyway the C- the ceo replied to her video saying, we're going to do one better. We're going to send you a new car. And I just think that that like is such smart marketing in that moment that not only is your product what it is, but also Mm -hmm. to just be aware of the bigger picture and to do something fun like that for somebody who, you know, had, had a bad thing happen to her. And at the same time, gave you a lot of free, brilliant marketing for your Stanley mugs. Oh, totally. I, I love when, um, I think when it's done right and brands interact with their fans and other people, or maybe not even their fans, their critics, and they do it in a really smart and savvy way, I, I find a lot of enjoyment out of that. But, you know, I was just thinking, V, we were talking about fire safes, and maybe mm. you just need to buy a couple Stanleys. Throw your passports <laughs> and documents in there. It probably doesn't cost as much money as a fire safe. That's so true. That's so true. Okay, I'll put that I'll put that on my Christmas wish list. <laughs> okay, my second thing is something that's very New York based and so I apologize for um 98% of you that don't live in New York, but in Grand Central Station there is high quality sushi to go. I'm talking Michelin rated sushi to go $60. It's called Joji Box. um, And it's hidden under Grand Central Station. And it's the sister sushi restaurant of Joji NYC. And I just, this is why I love New York is because before you get on a train, you can just go buy a box of like, wonderful sushi. I do realize $60 is still very expensive. Sushi (laughs) is an expensive taste, but I think it's phenomenal that that is something that New York offers you. And this is why I think New York has ruined me for all other cities is because when I want that sushi, when I want that fun experience, it's like at your fingertips. 
Yeah, I think, well, you and I have had like kind of had this discussion. Like I, I do think San Francisco does food better mm, than New York. Yes, you do. Um, but I, I also lived there for 10 years, so I'm, I'm very biased. I, I think a lot of it has to do with like the quality of produce and access to that. But I do feel like New York has, it has a lot more. And, and then like your to-go options, I feel like can be really good. And it's funny because you said $60. I was like, oh, that's a steal. And then I was like, oh no, that is really expensive. But once you get into like nicer sushi, I don't mean rolls. I mean your omakase, your nigiri, your sashimi. You lose all perspective on what yeah. something should cost because yeah. you can get r- absurdly expensive. Um, but I'm really bummed that I didn't know about this when I, I was there in November. So next time I'm there, we need to go. All right. My last thing is a little bit bigger and more dense than my first two fun things. Um, and it is an opinion piece written in the Washington Post by Karen Atia. Uh, and it is titled, Let's Finally Stop Pretending Beyonce Stands for Liberation. And it is a critique on the fact that we've talked about this in the past, that Beyonce doesn't really explain herself ever as -hmm. much as some other stars try to get ahead of their own stories. And so in the wake of the um, Gaza-Israel conflict, Beyonce's recent film is streaming in Israel and she isn't responding to any criticism or explaining why she's choosing to do that in the sense of like, well, it looks like you're choosing a side by doing that or profiting Mm. off of showing your film at this time in Mm -hmm. that country. And before I get into it, I do think that my, my, while I thought some of her points in this article were really interesting the whole time I was like, Taylor Swift also does not say anything in regards Mm -hmm. to this conflict in particular. I know that she has spoken out about politics in the past and her film is also streaming from what I can tell and for what my research shows me. So it's one of those things where if you're going to critique one, I feel like you have to critique others as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder if the reason why this writer in particular is putting this critique on Beyonce is because she's using liberation a lot in her work and specifically black liberation Mm -hmm. and she goes on to kind of talk about the fact that it's black liberation for mass consumption Mm -hmm. um saying there's a lot of money to be made in satisfying white mainstream fantasies of safe liberation even if perhaps especially if those fantasies defang movements for actual freedom and justice and preserve the status quo the faucets of the liberal fantasy include black firstism or being tapped to be white owned brands to be the first black person to do something. This was played up when Beyonce was the first black woman to headline Coachella, the first black woman to wear the famed Tiffany yellow diamond, um, which was actually a rock source during the bloody era of British colonialism in South Africa. So I think this is a really good article to show contradiction mm-hmm. in the sense that Yes. When it is a first, you call it a first. And at the same time, you hope that it's not an only. You Mm -hmm. hope that the first opens the door and like more walk through the door Mm -hmm. and it becomes a 
something that we don't have to keep saying the first of. Mm -hmm. And it also is this idea of like, it is kind of crazy that we are still having firsts here in the 21st century. But at the same time, do we not mention it when it happens? Is it not something to be celebrated? And how do we both continue to move in a liberated direction for black women and at the same time in a true liberated direction versus what we can easily consume and allow mm-hmm. within the confines of that that is like safe for mass consumption. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, I, I thought this inter- I thought this article was so interesting and a different perspective that I hadn't thought of. I think it's hard as at the end of the day we are two white women and so I'm I'm not I'm not going to disagree with her point of view at, at all because you know that's her point of view and her lived experiences as a black woman is going to be fundamentally different than mine. Um but I do think what's interesting and it's not her it's I think society at large tends to do is want a lot from our cultural figures, our celebrities. And I feel like, you know, we kind of have talked about this where we look to them as these deities, as these greater than beings. And I think this is a good reminder at the end of the day that they're just humans and that they're going to misstep. And and I'm not saying this is a misstep for Beyonce. I actually... I'm not, I'm not really sh- I'm not really sure what I think it is. Um I need to mull on it more, but like I think we are putting them on this high pedestal and they also haven't necessarily asked to be there. Like they're mm. like in some ways yes, Beyoncé maybe plays into a little bit more like the deity like godly figure. But I I don't know, I still just think they're human and I think something that I had to grapple with like I don't know how old this woman was, but I feel like in my 20s, I definitely had a lot more like celebrity worship. And and as I've gotten older, like you kind of you find out things about people and you're disappointed. And I think I just started really realizing everyone's just human and you're just not going to always agree with everything they do, every stance they take, whether they say something or they don't say something. And that doesn't mean that they're not, you know, they're not good people or bad people, like whatever. They're just celebrities. And I feel like Beyonce is like, you know, she talks about consumer capitalism in this piece. And of course, Beyonce is a capitalist. Like you don't become a billionaire, like not being, you know, interested in that pursuit. I also think that we, we've talked about this before that we can, we've conflated like our politicians with our celebrities, maybe starting Mm. with Donald Trump or like Mm -hmm. maybe it was all leading up to, and he's the pinnacle of it, but that it's kind of like, I don't really, I I want to start separating church and state in that regard. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think there are, there are definitely things that a celebrity could do where I'm like, Oh, you don't hold my same principles and values. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to tap out. Mm -hmm. But if there is like a more, if there's a differentiation there, Mm -hmm. I can't say that like, I think that's necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know some people say like, well, if you have a platform and if you have a voice, you have to Mm -hmm. use it. And I don't know. I think there's like nuance in that of, 
does every celebrity need to also have opinions on something that is not a soundbite? Well, and at the end of the day, I think if you're someone who, it's entirely possible like Beyonce doesn't have a firm opinion on on one way or the other, let's say. And so, I don't know, you're in a bit of a lose-lose situation. Like you're going to piss somebody off and like, I'm not saying that should be like your driving force of why you don't say anything because you don't want to piss people off. I'm not saying that, but like, I think it's been really interesting watching Bella, or I'm sorry, Gigi Hadid um, navigate this whole situ- this whole situation because she is half Palestinian and she's been a very vocal supporter of free Palestine and a two-state solution while also saying, you know, I uh, like am very much against anti-Semitism and and everything like that. But she has had to, on multiple occasions, like re-explain herself. You know, she'll put out a statement and I've actually, I, th- I think she's handled it really well. I've like read a lot of what she's put out there and I agree with her. But then she's made some missteps. She posted things that weren't true and had to then say, okay, I posted something and it wasn't true. And so, and and I, I see the comments that are on there and it's just, it's messy. And so I do feel like, in this situation, it it can just be really messy. And I can see, I, th- I think that's why, like, when you just don't say anything, you just keep not saying anything. You know, if, t- if she had always spoken about everything and then was silent on, on this, I think that'd be one thing. But when you're just silent on everything, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just taking that, that line across everything. Mm-hmm. Making it cleaner for herself. Yeah. Anyway, I highly recommend everybody read the article because I thought it was just a really interesting perspective on what Beyonce has created and continues to create Mm -hmm. written from a black woman. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, no, it was it was good. Um, Shall I? Yeah. Get into it. We're going to swing the other way and get a little bit silly. (laughs) I just discovered that Amy Sedaris has a column on The Strategist. Were you aware of it? Oh my gosh, yes. I love this column. Okay, I didn't know. I just found it. And so it's it's basically Ask Amy and it's like people asking her what gifts she should give (laughs) or they should give. And I love Amy Sedaris so much. She's just so weird and quirky and irreverent and I I find her just absolutely delightful if you really want to enjoy yourself one night look up Amy Sedaris and her interviews with David Letterman he would often have her as a guest when a guest would bow out or like they couldn't find somebody she was always like a last minute fill-in and (laughs) I just find them so funny and they have such a great rapport they're really really cute but on her on her column, I read, I'm going to read this one because it just made me laugh. It's very short, but it gives you an idea of Amy and her humor. It says, Dear Amy, I'm looking for something for my husband of 30 years. He's 63 years old. His birthday is on Christmas Day, so double the pressure on me. He has a worn-out messenger bag, and I'd love to find him a better one. We also love to travel, especially to Japan. Signed, Mrs. Bookworm. Dear Mrs. Bookworm, Il Bosante and Billy Kirk make nice bags. Get one and fill it with Japanese yen and sleeping tablets for the plane ride. That takes care of Christmas. For his birthday, make him a personalized bookmark that doubles as a coupon for a hand job. 
<laughs> and all of these are just little pieces of just freaking humor and that uh, if you know Amy Sedaris, I don't think any of these people are, are expecting to get like actual recommendation. Billy Kirk does make really good messenger oh, bags. Okay. I have gifted a Billy Kirk bag. And okay, it, I'm not familiar. So it that, is beautiful. So there is some helpful information in there. Okay, for my second thing, it is Christmas cards. And the royal family released their Christmas card, uh, or so the, the prince and princess of Wales, rather. And they were very, they were in jeans. Uh, the British tabloids were running with, like, California cool and, uh, of course, like, pitting them against Meghan or whatever, which is, mm-hmm. like, the most tired storyline. But it got me thinking about Christmas cards in general, and I was reminded of a piece written, and it says... An open letter to my husband <laughs> regarding our family holiday cards by none other than our very own Veronica McCarthy. <laughs> oh my god, I should have posted about this. I totally forgot I wrote this piece. <laughs> this was featured in McSweeney's and it is so funny. Veronica wrote this a number it's two, 2017. Oh my god. And Veronica talks in this piece about how on holiday cards, women always sign their names after their husbands, despite the fact the odds are the woman probably made the holiday card. And I read this at the time and I was like, oh my gosh, you're so right. What am I doing here? Why am I behind my husband who's never thought of about a holiday card one day in his life? Very much recommend this article. Oh my God, and I also, love this. <laughs> if you haven't already this year done your holiday cards and you plan to do them, put your name first. <laughs> I sign all of my cards because I write the cards. I sign them, love Veronica. And then sometimes I'll just write in Andrew's name. Or once I put it in parentheses, I was like, and Andrew. <laughs> just like acknowledging that he was around when I wrote this card and did this gift. But I very much go... I'm taking credit for my work. Yes. I realized that with like our, even our presence, like I would, I like dad and mom or like whatever. And I was like, no, mom is first. I did this. I love it. Um, Okay. This is my little bonus one. And I love Hugh Grant. I have loved Hugh Grant as we talked about in the romantic thing, like in Notting Hill and Four Weddings and a Funeral. Love him. As Hugh Grant has aged, I only love him more. And I know. Really? For so- oh, I adore him because he is a curmudgeon. He mm. is. And whether it's put on for press, I don't care. I enjoy it. And I love a curmudgeon. Like Larry David is my favorite. And so a cranky man, <laughs> but done, done well, like done in humor, who is also very self-deprecating, which both Larry and Hugh Grant are. But Hugh Grant is doing press right now for the Wonka movie with Timothy Chalamet. And again, do I think some of it is an act? Absolutely. But I am eating it up. Like, he's just so annoyed. He talks about how much he hated doing the movie. The only reason he makes films anymore is because he has five kids. How he should never have had kids so late in life. Like, how he's so tired. Oh, my God. The honesty. (laughs) But he does it in such, and I know he's not everybody's cup of tea. I know some people find it annoying, and I know there's like some problematic things about him. But I, I love Hugh Grant. I just, I really do. So I will link to a couple of his 
interviews, uh, a late night interviews that I just thought were really funny. I love it. All right. For my last thing, it was an interview with Annette Benning in The Guardian, and she's also promoting a film called Nyad, which is uh, based on a true story about the woman who swam from Florida to Cuba. Oh, my God. I watched this like a few days ago. Oh, I did didn't realize it. Yeah, it was so good. She was so good in it. Like, highly recommend. Okay, I haven't, I haven't seen it. Um, but I, it's her and Jodie Foster, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, she talks in the interview about. I, I love Annette Benning. I just, I think she's wonderful. And there was some things in there that I didn't know. I didn't realize she became famous at thirty. I, I don't know. I just never knew that. And I do think there's something when you find fame just a little bit older, I -hmm. feel like you're so much more grounded and have like such a good perspective. Um, Well, you're emotionally stunted the year you find fame. So yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, But she talks about getting older and her children being out of the house, how she feels now a combination of two things, which we'll kind of get into the main episode with female burnout. But One, once her children were grown and out of the house, that there was, you know, just the element of not having to look after people anymore, and that frees up your time. And then on top of that, she talks about menopause. And I had heard this from, I want to say, actually, gosh, I had read it somewhere else, another woman talking about going through menopause. But, like, basically when you go through menopause, you get this burst of energy. And uh, for a lot of people, it manifests in creativity, And it's because it's the first time in your, it's since you were, you know, whenever you started your period, your body is not trying to reproduce. Mm. And, you know, we don't realize how much internally is going on with that. And I thought that was fascinating. I never, ever thought about that before. And so she talks about that. It was, it was just a really great interview. And I was also reminded of one of my favorite films that I have not watched in years, and that is The American President. Do you remember this? Oh, my God. I haven't thought about that movie in a decade. I don't know. know. It's Aaron Sorkin. It's what who I also love, and I also know some people find to be problematic. I But West Wing creator, this was before the West Wing, and it kind of what spurred on the West Wing. And I didn't realize that Martin Sheen is actually in The American President. He plays a role. But Michael Douglas plays the president. So handsome. He falls in love with Annette Bening. You guys, it is, if you've never seen this movie, it's so good. I loved it. And now I'm like, okay, I need to watch this again because it's been a while since I've seen it. It feels like a really good holiday movie. Like that could be a fun holiday moment yes. that isn't so holiday, mm-hmm. you know, holiday adjacent, feel Completely. good adjacent. Completely. So yeah, lots of things to watch and, and do in the Christmas downturn. I need to do a deep dive because I also have read about menopause and creative births and someone somewhere once described going through menopause like she had the freedom when she was 11 years old and she wasn't aware, so much aware of her body or self-conscious of her body or mm. self-conscious of herself. She felt like this 11-year-old energy of just doing without... Oh God, sounds amazing. <laughs> I know, right? And I do wonder how much of our body is like, un- we are unaware of it being like the doing, quote unquote, of our mind and our body is like to reproduce, to keep, mm-hmm. you know, the species mm-hmm. alive and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I gotta say, I'm. I, I know there are downsides of going through menopause, like 
especially for me who already is a hot person who has like mm, heat flashes. Your hot flashes are going to be insane. <laughs> I can't even imagine. <laughs> but I do feel like on the other side, I don't, I'm not, I'm, I don't mind any of that. We shall see. We'll get back to you in like what, 15 years. <laughs> I think if I'm lucky, maybe 10. I don't, I don't know, actually. I, th- I think it, it really varies for everybody, but yeah, maybe 10, 15 years. <sighs> well, we'll check in then. <laughs> Talk to you then, guys. <laughs> Here we are. As always, we said 10 years, but really it's more like 10 seconds. <laughs> and I've not today, gone through menopause. <laughs> <laughs> Brit's experiencing a hot flash, there everybody. It's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. But speaking of hot flashes and other female things, today we are talking about a very, I wouldn't say specific female topic, but a female driven topic, and that would be female burnout. And I started to think about this because I saw this study come across like one of the many, I don't know, avenues in which I read. And it said two types of people are at a much greater risk of burning out than everyone else, women and workers under 30. (laughs) And (laughs) there was just something so strange about that sentence to me. It was from CNBC. And I'm just like, really? That's how we're quantifying things now? Like women and workers under 30. And if you're a woman and a worker under 30, you're probably already burnt out. You're probably like, I throw in the towel. This isn't working anymore. I think I might know one of those. (laughs) She only recently graduated from college and she's fucking done. She is done. (laughs) Hey, apparently there's there's reason to believe why. But they're specifically speaking to Gen Z and then women at large. And I have mold on female burnout for a while now, not just from hearing from other friends, but my own experience of the feeling of malaise and tiredness. Mm -hmm. And I also think that some people miss, I don't want to say diagnose because I don't know, I'm not going to be a doctor here, but I also think some people don't even realize they're burnt out when they're burnt out. And I think that was a case for myself is that I was not even, I was blaming myself for how tired I was all the time. Mm. Constantly tired, constantly fatigued, constantly uninspired, constantly cranky. Like I was a real fucking delight to be around. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely was not my best self. And when when do you feel like that was? I want to say it was like coming out of the pandemic maybe. Mm. And these two groups of people, women and people under 30, Mm -hmm. they say they think they suffer from burnout uh, possibly a bit more because of what the pandemic did to them, that they Mm -hmm. had the highest, the the pandemic had the highest impact on them. Completely. For women, one, it was because child rearing, child labor came into the home in a way and, you know, they had to both continue to work or teach the kids and Mm -hmm. work have mm-hmm. the kids at home. There's that conversation. Then also people under 30, they had the biggest impact because one jobs change significantly. You're now sometimes working from home, which can also actually lead to burnout as opposed to the opposite because your home life and your work life are combined. And so mm-hmm. 
when do you shut off? Like you're always answering emails in your home, in your space, in, in like a space that you should be able to designate separate from work. Mm-hmm. And that also there is this other kind of conversation with Gen Z that they are, while they are on the like forefront of wanting everything to be better for everybody and arguing for that, they also are at the forefront of climate change and there's like a doomsday mentality about them. And then when Mm -hmm. the pandemic hit, it kind of was like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way of like, and look now this, like Mm -hmm. what else is there to live for? There's this like bigger idea of like, what, what am I doing right now? Like, what is the point? Because Mm -hmm. I think they're witnessing more than anybody else, a massive shift in the definition of a career. We Mm -hmm. went from I think you and I and people of our generation could still get into a career and stay in a career their entire lives. And I think the likelihood of that is becoming less and less and less. And Gen Z is ironically now faced with more choices. And there's like this idea of decision fatigue as well, where if like, if you have all these choices to choose from, you're ultimately going to be exhausted from that fact, as opposed to, you know, having two to three choices or careers of what to go into and just knowing, well, this is what it is, and I'm going to make the best of it. I, I think a huge part of the problem is that we are, as women now, trying to go in to a man's world as women and play by their rules. Mm. And I don't think that works for us because we are different. Like, we are a different species. We have, if we choose to or we're able to, we have children a lot of the times at a prime point in your career. And then if you decide to delay children, there's a chance that you're dealing with having children later and you're going through all these hoops to try and have children. That does a number on your body and your psyche and emotions and all these things. And so I just keep thinking, like, this is where I'm just, like, down with the patriarchy. (laughs) Because it's not working for any of us. It's also not working for men. Like I, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, just harp on, on men all the time, but like, I don't think the patriarchy works for men either. Like, I feel like we have to find a way to recalibrate. And I think there are places that are doing that. I feel like you look at the Scandinavian cultures and I know I know what some people are going to say, well, they're like so much smaller and they're more homogenous and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying that doesn't play a part, but like we have to at least be able to take some of that because when you go to these places and people do have equal maternity and paternity leave, they're like given all this time off. They have a lot of flexibility. You don't find it's why you find their quality of life better. It's why when you look, when there's all these surveys done and they talk about quality of life, they talk about happiness index. It's often in these societies in the Scandinavian regions because they have tried to change it. They've tried to create more gender parity and equality. And I think unless we do that here, we're never, women are always going to feel burnt out because we're trying to exist in a man's world and we're, we're not men. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to find a new playbook. I don't, I don't, I can't tell you how to do that, but I just think that that's what we need to do. (laughs) Well, it kind of reminds me of the Barbie movie, which I thought was so brilliant this summer because 
it showed that if you took the patriarchy and completely flipped it on its head, it also doesn't work. No. Like, that's also not the answer. And right. I think that was such, like, a smart, beautiful way in which Greta Gerwig so kind smart. of, like, pushed yeah, she pushed back on everybody that was like, well, feminine feminism is just here to like be anti-man. And she's like, no, we are like looking for something else where we can like both coexist together and both benefit from the fact that like, what what does a world look like when we can both do what we do best in whatever role we want and not feel so exhausted all the time yeah. or so undervalued or so overworked or so exploited like Mm -hmm. how do we how do we get there and I also think not only does that speaking in the Scandinavian countries when you're saying that they're given this time to live and to experience life to the fullest I find them to be happier Mm -hmm. and I think that also some of the burnout that I experience is from having to interact with very unhappy people Mm. all day long and hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And I think you go into corporate America and the way in which we think it's acceptable to talk to each other, the way in which we think it's acceptable to operate a meeting, to exist side by side blows my mind. And the exhaustion I feel walking away from those interactions. And I realize I am like, you know, an Enneagram speak a nine. And so Mm -hmm. I am super sensitive to energies at the end of the day. But I also think that those people that I find to be the most difficult and the most biting are the ones who are most responsible for the capitalistic bottom line of the company growing. Mm -hmm. And so I try to extend as much like grace towards them but then at the same time also realizing like how do we just take apart this hamster wheel (laughs) (laughs) completely I you know what I think is interesting sorry getting into more Enneagram stuff but I am an eight and as an eight I don't have a hard time advocating for myself and saying what I need and sometimes it feels really selfish, I think, because I've been told, like, those things are selfish. And, but I don't know that I've experienced, like, full burnout the way other people describe burnout, because I feel like before I get to that point, I let everybody know, (laughs) like, I'm like, I'm melting down, or I'm on this pathway, you know, um, And so I do think some of it is going to be personality types and how, you know, you take things on, you take on other people's emotions to your point. Um, And I think like for me, I just, and I think an unhealthy version of me is probably the worst person you would ever want to work with because they'll be a tyrant. But I think like healthy eights would be good at like, would be a little bit better about saying, putting up those boundaries and taking time for themselves. And I think then those, then you also like have the opposite where then you're like, you're selfish or then you're thought of as not working. It's hard. There's just so many factors. And I I think that's where you just have to not fucking give a shit. (laughs) Totally. Something else I've like, 
also tried to do in terms of reducing the feeling of burnout is when I make a decision, I act on that decision in the sense of like, I think so many times we have so many open feedback loops in our head, Mm -hmm. like so many lists that we have running in our head to do lists of, okay, I need to do this, pack that, you know, buy this, wrap that, especially like right now in this holiday season. And two things that has been like immensely helpful for me is write everything down. And when I make a decision about what to buy or what, you know, what I need or what piece of furniture for me as a decision maker, which I will explain in a sec, (laughs) if I don't act on that decision, it exhausts me because I've made my decision. And then I'm in decision fatigue because I'm still making these decisions over and over and over again when I've already made them. So now I need to act on them. Mm. Um, There's this brilliant um, book on management that I love from the Harvard Business Review. And it says there's two types of of people. There's decision makers and there's presenters. And I think I've talked to you about this. Yeah, Yeah. we have. Yeah, because I I am a presenter. (laughs) You're a presenter. And there's not a better like person to be. There are two very different types of people and you actually need both. And the idea being is the decision maker likes to make decisions, doesn't like to do the research, doesn't like to look things up, like wants to be presented with all the facts, wants to make a decision and move on with their life. Whereas the presenter doesn't really like making decisions, doesn't want the stress of the decisions, wants it to be somebody else's decision, but they will present 20 different options. We could do this, we could do that, we could do this, we could do that. And that gives them life. What drains them is making decisions. And what drains me is thinking about all the different options. Mm -hmm. I like to make a decision and I like to act on it and I like to move on and then the next and then the next and then the next. And as long as I see forward momentum and action in my decisions, I, I get energy in life from that. What I don't get energy in life from is when I'm dwelling on something, when I'm overthinking something, when I'm being, when I'm presenting myself with too many options, like I have to constantly narrow everything in my life down. And I think that comes to the way in which I dress is a bit like a uniform. The way in which I eat is very like day in, day out. I have the exact same thing for lunch every day. Like I try to eliminate all the excess decisions I need to make so I can own, so I can actively proactively make the decisions that are most important to me every day to get through what I need to get through in mm. the most like direct manner. Mm. <laughs> It's funny because I, as a, someone who likes to present, I mean, I do find I can get exhausted with my own presenting because there are endless, there's just endless things to present, but I do enjoy that. I like doing the research and I like looking up things, like whatever it might be. Um, but I think sometimes I'm thinking specifically about like my relationship with my husband, who is more of a decision maker is when they waffle or when they like make a decision and then they go back on that decision. And then that is, I find to be very difficult because I'm like, I'm giving, I'm presenting you things. I'm giving the control to you essentially. But then like, you have to stick with that. (laughs) Like you can't change from there. And then when, but when they do, then I like, I malfunction. I don't like that. (laughs) Yeah. I, how, I'm curious how you feel about this because the other thing that I try to avoid and I feel like emotional labor has been talked about ad, not, I I wouldn't say ad ad nauseum because here I am still talking about it. I can talk (laughs) about it forever, but I am trying to avoid taking on like additional emotional labor in my relationship in the sense of like, 
okay, if we're going to buy people gifts, we're going to do this together. Like I'm Mm -hmm. not going to be the one to plan everything. We're either going to plan it together or we're going to divide and conquer because I definitely realize that and how much of your brain space can be taken up by these tiny little decisions that have to be made all day to like keep a household running. And I specifically Mm -hmm. noticed this. I recently had to put my dog down of, he was 14, but I had him for 12 years. So I recently had to put him down and I realized while the grief is there, there's also this brain space that is freed up because Mm -hmm. while he lived with both of us, it was very much my dog. And I took, let's say 85% responsibility for him. And the amount of labor in my head of taking care of that dog when's the food going to run out? Does he have enough water? Did he get enough walks? Okay. If I'm going to go to this dinner after work, when is he going to get out for a walk? Like, can I ask Andrew to walk him? Like who's going to walk him tomorrow? It was always me communicating and Mm -hmm. thinking about booking the groomers, taking him to the vet. And while it was my dog and so it was my responsibility, it really was eye opening about, Oh, if we were to have children, how much I would need to divide and conquer that because it is very much like my personality as a decision maker to just take it all on because I ultimately want to control the decisions, which I yeah. need to work on. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, it's funny. I don't mind. My, my thing is I don't mind doing, I don't mind doing the shopping, the gift stuff. Like I don't, I don't mind a lot of that. I don't want to be fucking criticized. <laughs> like if you are not, because like he doesn't want to, he does not want to do that. But then like, he will then have a critique on like, <laughs> oh, that's what you bought. And then I'm like, no, you shut up. <laughs> like that's, that's where like- I'm happy to do this. I enjoy doing this because I have, I do have maybe control issues and I like things to look a certain way and be a certain way. I have ideas in mind, whatever it might be. But then you don't get to say anything about it unless you are actively saying, no, I want to participate in this. Let's do this together. I think that's different, but that's not usually the case in my relationship. And then I'm like, no critiques. (laughs) No, no. Brene Brown's classic quote. If you're not in the arena, you can't criticize. Like if you're not, and that's what she thinks and says to people who criticize whatever she's doing. She's like, if you're not down here doing this hard work with me, like I can't take the critiques, which I love. Funny enough, like Andrew is way more particular than me when it comes to like everything food. And I want to say he does all of the food shopping until recently his job has made him in office more, yada, yada, yada. So I have had to pick up some food shopping and I can't tell you the stress it, it, it was on me to go to the market and just get the essentials. Like I literally went to the market and I'm like, <gasps> and then there was like, he asked for this list of things and I was like, oh, they don't have the full fat organic cottage cheese. So what do I do? Do I do the 2% low fat or the 5% like non-fat? I was like sweating bullets. I was setting him photos in the market being like this or that. It was like a whole to do. And then I came home and I I literally had to unbox the groceries in front of him one at a time and explain my choices. I was like, look, they only had tuna, tuna, like uh, packed in olive oil that was not organic. So like, this is what I got you because I didn't want to do the tuna and water. And it was just like, I, I told him, I was like, you have to do this. I can't do this. You need that. You almost need like a grocery app that's like for you where it's like pick your substitute. You know what I mean? Like, 
<laughs> oh, what do you want here, Andrew? I told him when I came home that night, I was like, I don't know how those people in the grocery store do it that do like HelloFresh or whatever. Like I, the, I, I could never pick out somebody's groceries. I couldn't even do it for him. <laughs> That's why I, I only use the like grocery shopper thing when I'm like absolutely in need of it because I, I don't want someone making something I don't want. I was like, I'd rather not have it. Don't just get me this, the substitute that I don't want. A hundred percent. I understand. I'm not particular, but as someone who is with somebody that is particular, <laughs> I get it. And like, we either go together or he goes because I am not doing that again. <laughs> My burnout will be real from the um, from the freakouts that I had over the particularities of the avocados. I was like, dear God, this is going to ruin us. Yeah, as someone who is the grocery shopper, I actually find it more difficult when he goes because he just calls, he's he's just calling me, he's sending me pictures and I'm like, oh no, I'll just do it myself. But I think that's a lot of what women end up doing is like, mm-hmm. and I think that is where if you are in a heterosexual relationship, like men really could be better. It's, it is like, I don't want this to be like a bashing fest <laughs> on our like spouses or significant others, but like, when you're like, well, what should I make the kids for lunch? Well, what should they wear? And it's like, those are decisions that you are capable of doing and Mm -hmm. just do them, like make the thing, you know, if I, if I really want something specific, like them to be in some specific thing, I'll just tell you or lay it out, whatever. Otherwise just like, just do it. And I, and I know that a lot of men are capable because if you, do go away for a weekend. You know, everybody's a, everybody survives. You know, like maybe people's hair doesn't look very cute and the outfits don't match, but it's okay. So it's like, I know you can do that. Don't ask me when I'm home. And I'm like, I, I feel like that's a huge aspect on women where there's like, I do think there's like a constant asking. Even when your intentions are good, I think the intentions are good. But I, th- I think there's a constant reliance on women in the home to make decisions. Totally. I remember reading an article from a man once being like, he said, I knew I had a problem when I was cutting up chicken for my child. And I asked my wife, is this too hot for her to eat? (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, that was a real low point for me being like, dear God, if I can't tell if chicken's too hot for my child to eat and I need to ask my wife, like, that's just one example. How many other questions did I ask her that day that was not necessary to like put her in the decision-making position when maybe she's burnt out from that? Yeah. And I find I get really, I I get really short with questions like that because I'm like, but you, you can answer it on your own, you know, and then I feel bad and then it fights. So it's just like, it's one of those things that you've just got, you're constantly working on within a, within a relationship. Yeah. I'm going to end on this one story that I just love. And I want to take into, uh, if I were to ever have kids to use Ruth Bader Ginsburg as my uh, guiding light, uh, Mm -hmm. she, she and her husband had kids and she tells this story where she kept getting phone calls from her kids' schools Mm. and they were coming at a rate that she was like, dear God, this is a lot. And finally, she got a call from her son's school when she was working at her office in Columbia and she picked up the phone and she said, the child has two parents, please alternate calls. (laughs) And I just love that, that it was Mm. like kindly delivered, but also firmly delivered that like the 
male parent in this situation is 50% responsible and I'm 50% responsible. And that is how I'm dividing my household. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. That is a good one to remember. Uh, especially with the holiday season. So good luck to all the women out there. <laughs> Find us on Instagram at Women of Contradictions. Sign up for our newsletter at womenofcontradictions.com. Or drop us a note at hello at womenofcontradictions.com. Till next time. Ciao.